0: Uh, this is slightly unpanned. This is a spontaneous, almost an emergency episode, um, <laughs> displacing the long promised music and Marxism episode that I'm going to do soon, but that is highly relevant to this case because, well, something really weird has happened. And Tim has written a long sort of blog article, blog post article about it. But I'm going to let Tim explain to us exactly what it is that's happened. Good. All right. Well, um, let's see. Let's see how this goes. And it's, I'd say, weird or not weird at all. You know, the weird thing is that they would, you know, think that this could have possibly been a, a good idea. for. Um... Anyway, the they in question, first of all, we should say, or I should say, is David Mancuso and uh, Louis Vuitton, who you might not think of as being kind of, you know, people. Uh, you know, people or organisations that would appear in the same sentence, but but now they do um, because earlier this summer, while I was away trying to write a book uh, in mornings while on vacation and then have fun in the afternoons, and a very old friend of David's called Tina Magennis was at the first uh, Love Saves the Day party, as it's often referred to, in February nineteen seventy, mm-hmm. forwarded me an article that had appeared in MixMag, reporting that. Uh, Louis Vuitton have uh, released a collection uh, titled Fall in Love, uh, which uh, has drawn inspiration, supposedly, from David Mancuso in the Loft. So, of course, as soon as I heard about this or, you know, read the opening sentence, I thought there's a straightforward outrage. Uh, It's a classic case of appropriation. I mean, I guess you can have low level appropriation. You know, someone just kind of borrows from something else or takes something from someone else. I'm not sure if that is maybe that isn't even. I don't know if that's considered to be even outside of, you know, if power relations are intrinsic to the idea of appropriation. Uh, I suppose they probably are now I come to think of it a little more carefully, but anyway, this was the classic case of you know a multinational corporation you know claiming to have inspiration from david i mean there is a there is a kind of fairly bigger side to all of this that is I think we might return to a bit later or maybe we'll we'll discuss now i don't know i mean I still don't entirely know what to make of it but um i mean you Know on the one level, you have this incredible juxtaposition between uh what um turns out to be because I did some research into this, maybe I should have known already. But it is Louis Vuitton is part of uh LVMH, the MH stands for the Champagne, the champagne Group Moe Hennessy, I think it is, I'm not even too sure how to pronounce that name but together lvmh is the biggest luxury goods corporation in the world and the most profitable so they made 17 billion pounds last year uh, which is which is quite a lot of money uh, it's a huge amount of money so they lie at the belly of of you know of um neoliberal capitalism uh, they are very they are acquisitive they bought tiffany uh about a year ago i think it was for, you know, for a huge sum of money, I could check the figures there in in this, this piece that I posted on Facebook. So you have this like this incredible, you know, it couldn't be. So on the one hand, you have the world's most powerful and profitable um, luxury corporation. And on the other hand, you have David, who, you know, for his entire life ran a party that uh, didn't seek, you know, to engage in any form of what you, I think, you would call Jeremy capital accumulation. So if he made a bit of money, it would always be ploughed back into the party. I mean, David, in the late 1970s, started to spend, you know, a huge amount of money on very high-end stereo equipment. But of course, the purpose of this um, was to, you know create a music, you know, the finest possible musical experience at a dance party. So it was a kind of, it was a collectively shared investment, if you want to call it that. Certainly it wasn't only enjoyed by David. And the point was always a non-materialistic one. It's like, how can we encourage people to relax and follow the music and through this very simple process, enter into a utopian um, scenario in which our, you know, egos, you know, might dissolve to varying degrees. And as they do, we can actually form a level of, you know, community and inter- interconnection or interconnectivity that reveals to us the fundamentals of the universe being interconnected and vibratory and enables us to kind of, you know, form a sense of, you know, of uh, a, a heightened form of expression combined with effective equality. So that was, you know, David would spend money. He didn't mind spending big money on some items. I don't know what the cost of the Koetsu cartridges, for example, or Mark Levinson amps were when David purchased them. I I think I have the figure somewhere. But they're definitely thousands of dollars, but it was always for this kind of purpose. Beyond that, David, um, you know, didn't want to spend a penny. Uh, on you know really anything else the the only other thing he likes spending money on and he did this very generously as well is taking friends out to eat. This is something he really really enjoyed. Both of these activities, I mean, the party being much more important than taking friends out to eat, but they're basic. They're also doing the same sort of thing, which is trying to generate a sense of share a shared community, a giving community. Um, and it goes back, of course, to David's, you know, upbringing in the orphanage. He was there from, I think, two days old. He was programmed this way. Whatever stresses and, you know, whatever trauma he experienced by, you know, being, you know, taken by his mum to this children's home at such a young age and not having her around him. The great compensation for this was music and and also the kind of community of, of kids who were around David, which must have been a kind of strange experience but finally was the, the, you know he would play with them no doubt uh, that's what kids do. They explore and they play and then every every week a sister Alicia, the nun in charge of them would put on a party. So David kept on repeating these situations. you know one could argue that it was you know this was about a way for him to process trauma from his earliest days right through to you know the end of his life i mean just to kind of add a little bit quickly even when david went through a really rough period which began effectively in 1984 when he moved from uh, 99 prince street in heart half soho uh, to um the pilgrim's theater on third street and avenues between avenues c and d in alphabet city when he made that movie it, it kind of things did not go as they were planned and it's a long story but to cut that long story short, um, David, you know, found himself in the middle of, you know, drug wars, effectively, that were raging at the time in this, in this part of New York City. The regeneration money had been planned, and that was one of the reasons David moved into the area, but it was withdrawn by Ronald Reagan. David fell on hard times and eventually lost this building, uh, which was all his money he had, effectively, in 1993-94. Even after this point, David, you know, wouldn't compromise what he considered to be the core values of the loft. You don't charge for invite cards. You don't overcharge for the entry. You know, the entry is kind of designed to kind of, you know, pay for the cost of the party and, you know, maybe a little bit over for David. But it was uh, he never advertised. Um, He wouldn't team up with promoters who thought that they could, you know, you know, often very generously in a way, want to give David a platform, but within a context where they would be making money in other rooms. He didn't ever sell alcohol. He refused every possibility of, of co- commercialization and commodification uh, just, you know, at, at his lowest point, even after he lost his home and was then eventually reopening. David, of course, passed away in two thousand at the end of two thousand and sixteen. So he never compromised, and he was always about egalitarianism. And one of the things that David would always say to me, or would often make this point, um, is that it wasn't just about kind of you know being you know pro civil rights or gay liberation or pro feminist. He was David was always concerned with all of those things, of course, but you know, arguably first and foremost, economic equality. He thought that was the most difficult thing to achieve. That that the most difficult thing to achieve would also to bring bring people from different classes together on the dance floor. That was the kind of that was the ultimate struggle, and that's what he was really committed to. Just to put it on the table at the beginning, the thing that would like seemed to kind of potentially make this a bit complicated is that the designer was Virgil Abloh, who is a renowned, who is a renowned um, African American designer. Uh, he had a significant role. Um, Within hip hop, including sort of supporting hip hop, making some key videos for hip hop, integrating you know hip hop uh, people within his kind of fashion shows, etc. Uh, he was seen to take a you know an in inverted commas radical black aesthetic um, from the street, if you like, and to translate it into his own designs for his own company. And then when he was he was then made the first. Black designer of the Louis Vuitton men's wear department. So it was seen as an unlikely move by Louis Vuitton. And then you know that Virgil Abloh, who is kind of appointed there, ends up um, not just kind of supposedly you know just towing the line within the fashion world, but actually introduces you know black street aesthetics into the kind of clothing. He died um, at a, you know a tragically young age of. I Pretty sure it's forty one. It could be forty two, but I think it was forty one. I think last November, so ten months, eleven months ago. And it's a bit unclear what's going on. I am looking into this a bit more, but there is the um, there is a question mark over how much Virgil Abloh was even involved in designing this collection because you know he had the idea, but then it was uh, at least in part and maybe more than in part executed by the Louis Vuitton team because he became ill and he he passed away. So this kind of having Virgil Abloh did sort of seem like well this is not a straightforward thing to get engaged with on a critical level perhaps because you know are we are we you know are we sort of treading on the kind of hallowed reputation of a of an influential designer. In the end it felt like Virgil Abloh wasn't the story here. But, you know what the story was was still a lot clearer than that. It was that this is the you know the most profitable luxury goods company or corporation in the world and most profitable, you know, co-opting David's name, basically for a campaign. It wasn't really about Virgil Abloh. And, you know, especially as uh, we're not sure what his contribution was. I mean, I will just say that Virgil Abloh did develop a reputation for being serious about his music and his sound system. So at one point I thought, well, does this align him with David? I mean, I'm listening to his, DJ sets. I kind of thought, well, not really. Some comments have come through questioning this somewhat further, but again, I don't think it's really something to be get too stuck in. What I do want to say is that in the brief uh, press release PDF, basically, that came out with the collection that I wrote, I wrote to Louis Vuitton press office and, and got the got the the marketing material, which was, as say, just one uh, one press release. The most problematic thing for me in a way is that on the one hand, and I don't think, I, mean, we, I think we're pretty certain at this point, although it's not completely confirmed, but it seems inconceivable that Virgil Abloh would have written this text. And what the text basically says is that um, Louis Vuitton identifies with David Mancuso and the loft. Now, it make, tries to make <laughs> one point, Yeah, tries to make one point. This might have come from Virgil Abloh, but I don't know for sure which is to say that basically clothing, designing clothes and, you know, let's say DJing, David would like preferred the term musical hosting. The idea, you know, so the idea in part is that, oh, there's this big overlap, and this synergy between designing a set of clothes and, and selecting music at a loft party. And, you know, I was, I just thought this was ridiculous. And, you know, okay, so you draw on, you know, you can draw on different styles and different periods and combine them together into a whole. But the object, of of this exercise couldn't be more different, you know. One, you know, you don't have a trans but in short, you do not ever have a transcendental experience by putting on a pair of trousers and an ex, and a jacket in a Louis Vuitton store. Yet yeah, this, you know, one is all about the exterior, how you look. The other is all about the interior, how you can reexperience your body within the within a party in the universe. So, so this was one key argument that I just thought, you know, aside from the awfulness that Louis Vuitton might be kind of wanting to profit out of the loft and David opposed this kind of corporate world for his his entire life I mean he was all about economic equality and equality in general Um, and here is a company that in the midst of the pandemic is making record profits um, when most people are suffering or struggling Um, so this is one that's taking on there's the big problem then there's one argument are DJing and clothing design are the same therefore you know Louis Vuitton and David Mancuso enjoy this connection, and the other is that Louis Vuitton shares David Mancuso's values of egalitarianism. <laughs> now it cites, of course, it cites civil rights, gay liberation, and feminism, and of course these are all, you know, are, you know, were transformative social movements in their day, and they continue to be incredibly important. What it doesn't mention is economic equality, but it does what it says is it shares David's view of egalitarianism, and for David, as I've explained, economic equality was you know, a very important thing. In fact, David was into no money at all. So, as you know, if you go into a loft party in New York, you paid your money at the entrance. At the you know, at the entrance, the donation, and then that was it. The food inside, the cloakroom. There was never any reason to exchange money. David was so anti-capitalism on that sort of front. So, this idea that this company that is making record profits would share David's idea of egalitarianism just made me feel really quite, you know, quite queasy. I decided right away I wanted to write a piece about this. It just so happens that I, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of activity about this on the on the, you know, on the internet after it was released. You just had dance music publications online basically celebrating this. And my big my big question was, well, how about the fact that, you know, it's like, oh, isn't it cool? And it's Virgil Abloh and it's Louis Vuitton, and it's like they're high, high fashion and What about the loft being the absolute inverse of everything Louis Vuitton stands for? You know, this is the ongoing question. So I wrote this piece and um, it got, you know, I felt I kept it pretty tight at 7,000 words.